Well, it's always good to be here at Antioch Baptist Church. I want to tell you um, I appreciate your pastor. Uh, he has um, continually been a source of encouragement for me. Um, I can pretty much usually expect a phone call from him on Friday afternoons. I'm not sure why that is, but he will call me and ask me whatever we need, you know, whatever, whatever's going on, things that we have going on and things we need to talk about. It's usually on Friday afternoon. I guess that's when he's got me on his calendar, um, but it's always good to hear from, from Pastor Jeff. And I understand that there are some congratulations in order because Pastor Jeremy, I believe, just got married. Is that correct? Okay, well, that's, that's awesome. What a great thing to celebrate as a church. Uh, we got to celebrate that with our pastor. We're now members at the Rock Church, which is the new replant that uh, as after 99 years as a church, um, the church there, the, the few members they had left came and asked us as Centennial Association to help them. And so several churches gathered together to help them, and now we've replanted that church, restarted it, kept the name, the Rock Church there. And um, we uh, hired, when we, when we hired uh, Wesley as our pastor, or called him as pastor, um, he was without a wife and without any prospects. And we started praying for him, and in October, less than a year after we, we launched, well, right about the time, a year after we launched, um, we celebrated his wedding, which you don't get to do very often, celebrate the wedding of one of your staff members. So that's, that's always fun. But I do want to uh, thank you as a church for your love of missions, your love of Centennial Association, your love for the church of Jesus Christ. Um, it is obvious to me that you are not a church who just cares about the folks that are inside these walls, but the people who are outside of this, this place who also need to know Jesus, and who are some of those are serving Jesus just in different places. And so it is, it is always good. We've just finished as a, as a Southern Baptist Convention, uh, as the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. We've just kind of wrapping up this Sunday our uh, Lottie Moon Christmas offering time. I know it was mentioned earlier. Um, if you're not familiar with Lottie Moon, uh, that offering is set aside 100% of what goes to Lottie Moon goes to, to help our international missionaries that are on the field all over the world. We're going to talk about that pretty much for, for a little bit while we're, we're here this morning. Talk about international missions and, and what's going on there. We as a convention have gone through a lot of changes over the last several years. Uh, some of those having to do with international missions and the number of people we had on the field and what they were doing and moving them around and using the resources we have more efficiently and more effectively. And so in, in line with that, the uh, International Mission Board, under the leadership of our um, president, uh, Dr. Chitwood, uh, have set five big goals, and I'm not going to go over all of them, but, but two of them really do affect us as, as churches. Um, but before we get into all of those, there's, there's some statistics I want to share with you, some things that have been going on. And I know that 2020 was a dumpster fire for a lot of folks, and, and, and it was just a mess, and so that affected international missions as well. And so I don't know what the statistics are for 2020, because we're still in it, but in 2019, if you'll go to the next slide, uh, you'll see that 829 people groups throughout the world are being engaged by our international missionaries. 535,325 people at least heard the gospel. 
Most of those in their heart language, because that's the idea, is to try to reach people in the language in which they dream, in the language in which they think. And so that's, that's quite a lot of people that we've been able to reach. Of those, 47,929 people professed Christ as their Savior and Lord and demonstrated that through baptism. What an incredible number. 12,368 new churches were started in 2019 through our international work. This, last, this next number really, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on it. 33,068 people received advanced theological training. And that may seem like, oh, well, we taught some folks. Well, here's the thing. When you go into an international field, and some of you who've been there know this, the people who grew up there and who lived there and who speak that language better than we ever could are the best suited to then win people to Christ and then disciple them into their faith. And so we as the International Mission Board have made it a priority to be able to train those that are indigenous to the area so that they can then go out and plant churches and win people and be the church in that place. And so that number is significant that 33,068 people received advanced theological training because that, multi, that number means that exponentially they're going out and they're telling people about Jesus and they're planting churches. And 214 different places, different people groups, have ownership of their own missionary work. That means that as we've trained them and as they've planted churches, they have begun to send people out to different places and have ownership of their own missionary work. Now, it might just be to the village down the street. It might be to the mountains nearby where there's an unreached people group. That, that encompasses a lot of things. But those are some major goals, some major advances that we've made. And so I think we can celebrate that as a church because we all had a part in that, right? So let's celebrate what God has done. Come on, it's okay to clap in church. Your pastor's not here and I won't tell him, okay? I'm sorry. Um, but it takes a lot to get this done. And so this year for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, the goal is $175 million dollars. Take a deep breath. You don't have to reach that goal on your own. I'm not sure what your goal is, but I have confidence that you'll meet it. And if every church sets a goal and meets it, then we can come close to this 175. Because this is the 175th year that the International Mission Board has been in existence. It's gone under different names through the years, but, but our international mission work has been going on through our Southern Baptist Convention for 175 years. That's significant. You know, this year... Or this season of time, we, as, as Corey said a little while ago, we've spent our time over the last several weeks talking about the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, right? We spent a lot of time talking about the baby in the manger and, and the star and the shepherds and, and all of the things that the Bible teaches us about Jesus and how he, he was God made flesh and, and he came to this earth. And so we call that Advent in the Christian calendar. The come, Advent just is a, it's a fancy word that means the coming. And so the coming of Christ we celebrate and it kind of culminates in the celebration of Christmas Day. But it's not really over because we as a church know that Jesus didn't just come once, he's coming again, right? 
He's coming again. And so let's today spend a little bit of time in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where we see a picture of of a scene in heaven after Jesus has, has already returned. And after he has, well, he hasn't actually set up his kingdom on this earth at this point in the story. And a revelation can be very confusing, even for us preachers. Okay. But in the timeline of events, depending on your eschatology, there's all different people that believe he comes at this point or he comes in that point. But we're pretty, this scene that we're about to see comes on the heels of, we see a scene on the earth where uh, God has sealed 144,000 witnesses that are then going to go out and they're going to preach the gospel. These witnesses are Jewish people. They're going to go out and preach the gospel. And then John is given this vision of something in heaven. And so let's read together, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 7 of Revelation. It says this, and it's already, already been read today, but I'm going to read it again. After these things I looked, that's John. I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Lord God, we thank you. For giving us this text, we thank you for your word. We understand that there are things in your word that sometimes challenge our thinking and and sometimes uh, are difficult to, to grasp. But Lord, today as we just think about this scene and what you do and what you have done and what you will do to bring this about, Lord, help us to just glory in you. Help us to just praise you. Help us to be thankful for you. Help us to honor you with our thoughts and with our praises and with everything that is in us because we know that you are the one that makes this happen. Lord, we love you. We ask for understanding of your word. We ask for you to speak to us today through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for Jesus who came to this earth, took on flesh, became our Savior by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And we thank you that he is coming again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. We pray. Amen. So it's this scene here. If you don't know the book of Revelation, if this is something that's fairly new to you, and you or maybe you've been a Christian a long time and you say, well, I don't really go there because I know it's full of all kinds of pictures of images that are confusing and all that, um, then, then let me kind of give you a little background on just Revelation as a whole. John is one of the apostles of Jesus Christ who has been sent to the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled there because he's been preaching the gospel and the government didn't want to hear that. And so uh, rather than executing him, they send him to this island. And while he's there, he says in the first chapter of Revelation, John writes, I was basically he was worshiping on the Lord's day. He's the only one there. But he's worshiping on the Lord's day. And an angel appears to him and begins to show him this vision of things that have not yet happened. 
And then we, we, there at first, there's letters to actual churches that, that Jesus says, write these down and send them out to these seven churches. And then we begin to see all of these apocalyptic visions and things that, that truly can be confusing. But at this point in the text, John shows us, or Jesus shows John, and John records it for us, this picture in heaven. And so I want to take a few minutes and just talk about the description of the scene there, the description of the multitude, and then we'll get into the prescription for the multitude as we get farther into the text. So at first, the first thing John notices in the description of this multitude is how big it is. He says right here in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. He's not just saying, I can't count this. He said, I can't imagine anybody could actually count that high. Now, we've all been in large crowds, probably not so much this year. But we've all been in large crowds, whether that was at a ball game or maybe uh, who knows where you were, maybe a fair, you know, and just there's people everywhere. Y'all remember that? Remember what that was like for people to just be everywhere and not be scared to be around everybody? You know, we've all been in those places. And I think sometimes when we think of a large crowd, we might think in maybe the hundreds, maybe the thousands, maybe the tens of thousands, Maybe for some of us, we might reach 100,000 people. Marnie and I, when, when our son, our oldest son, was less than a year old, the Olympics came to Atlanta. Y'all remember that? 1996, we hosted the Olympics. And so we thought it would be a great idea to take our, uh, what, eight-month-old to Centennial Olympic Park. I have never seen more people in my life than that day that we were there. It was, it was just amazing how many people. But you know, that group of folks, even though in some ways they kind of resembled this crowd because there were people of all different shades, all different languages, all different cultures, there were all sorts of people there. It pales in comparison to this group. I don't know if John saw hundreds of thousands, or if he saw millions or billions or even trillions of people, but he saw a vast amount of people. I imagine a scene, think about it for just a second, a scene around the throne of God where there are so many people that as far as you look that way, and as far as you look that way, as far as wherever you look, all you see is people. A sea of people everywhere. It's a large crowd. And that tells me how vast and how just large and massive. And There's too many. I can't even find words that describe how big the missionary heart of God is. That he wants that many people surrounding the throne worshiping him. So as we go on and, and read the rest of the description, we find that there's not just, this isn't just a large crowd. This is an extremely diverse crowd. The words that John uses here is from every nation and all tribes and people and tongues. You know, John was there 
when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, and Jesus said to his apostles and to all of those that were around, go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that I have commanded you. But the words that Jesus uses there, he says, go into te ethne, all people groups, all ethnicities, everyone in every corner of all the world is what's encompassed in that word. And it's the exact same word that John uses here to say, I saw people from every nation, te ethne. He's seeing the fulfillment of the Great Commission that he got to hear pronounced back years ago. And, And then John also got to experience Pentecost a little bit. He was right there when Peter preached and when the, the Spirit came down and when people were hearing the gospel in their own heart language. You know, as, as John's describing this scene, he doesn't just pe- see people of all ethnicities, of different shades of skin. He sees people from all different tribes, cultures. People, you know, you can imagine there's people there that John, having been a man who lived in Galilee, who was raised in, in that part of the world, never traveled to a place where he might have seen the indigenous people of America or the Scandinavian people or, or people from Asia or, you know, from far, far East Asia or people from, from um, lower part of Africa. He, he never saw those people, but he's seeing them here. And he's hearing languages that at the time when he wrote this didn't even exist. There are people praising God in English. English didn't exist back then. People praising God in maybe sign language or, or other heart languages that they worship God in now. He's hearing this. He's seeing this. And I believe he's rejoicing. Because what he's seeing, again, is the massiveness of the heart of God saying that all should come. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter what language you speak. Doesn't matter where you come from or how you worship. There are people around the throne that may have worshipped in cathedrals and others that worshipped under a tree. There are people who were baptized in in creeks and people that were baptized in big elaborate places. All of these people around the throne of God. He continues to describe this scene and the next thing he says is they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I want you to think about that for just a second. Think through your scripture and all the times when you've been reading in the Old Testament and through the New Testament. How many times do we see the glory of God, at least a glimpse of the glory of God revealed when people just stood there? What happened when Moses was exposed to the glory of God? He fell on his face. What happened when Isaiah was in the temple and the glory of God appeared, he fell on his face. What happened when Jesus was being arrested and they asked him who he was and he said, I am, and the soldiers fell on their face. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus appeared and part of his glory was revealed to the three apostles that were there, they fell 
on their faces. So often throughout Scripture, when we see the presence of God being manifested, what we see is people falling on their faces in His presence. And yet here is this massive multitude of people, and they are standing in the presence of God. That doesn't say that the presence of God is diminished, or that it is hidden, or that it is somehow less than those times when He appeared on this earth. It's because the word there for standing means enabled to stand. They're not standing in their own power. These people are not in the presence of God because they earned it. Or because they went to church. Or because they, you know, said enough Bible verses. Or because they grew up in the right kind of home. There's no reason any of these people should even be there except that God allowed it. He enabled them to stand in the presence of God. He's their strength. He's their righteousness. He's the one that made it possible for each and every one of this multitude to stand in the presence of not only God, but also the Lamb. The Lamb that John the Baptist saw and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who is the sacrificial atonement for every person that would receive him as Lord. The one that stood in the gap for all of us who couldn't possibly be good enough on our own. That's Jesus. That's the Lamb. The next descriptor also kind of speaks to that same thing because they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb and they were clothed in white robes. And they were waving palm branches. That clothed in white robes, you know, we, we sing songs about that sometimes, right? Have you been to Jesus, to the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb, right? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You know, later in the, in the text, John is talking to one of the elders that is around the throne. The elder says to him, these are those who are clothed in white robes. Who are they? Where do they come from? And he says, I don't know. Lord, you tell me. And he refers to him as Lord. It's kind of like we would say, sir. He says, they've been washed. They've washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's counterintuitive. doesn't make sense. But they have taken who they are their very being, and he's been, they've been washed in Jesus' blood so that now they are pure. They are clean. They are able to stand in the presence of God. And they're not just standing there in these white robes as a symbol. You know, I used to tell my wife, on the off chance that, I have, that when I go to heaven, I have to wear what I've been buried in, Bury me in comfortable jeans and a nice shirt and tennis shoes. I know, amen, right? Just on the off chance. But I'm pretty sure if I read the Bible correctly, I'm going to get a white robe too. All right? And so that's, that's comforting. I, I'm, I'm sure it's, I'm, I hope it's comfortable. It's probably, you know, like my jeans. I don't, I don't know. But here we go. They are there. The white robe represents their righteousness. But they're not just celebrating the righteousness they have in Christ. They have palm branches that they're waving. Now in Scripture, when we see palm branches, it's, it's to celebrate victory. 
It was even said today that we, have this, we already have this victory in Christ. If you look throughout Scripture, you see them waving palm branches when? When Jesus rode into town on a donkey. And why are they celebrating? Why are they waving the palm branches? Because their victor has arrived. The one that they believe is Hosanna, the one who saves. The one who is going to deliver them has arrived, so they're waving palm branches. In Jewish celebrations, that's always what the palm branches meant. In the Feast of Booths, Sukkot, as they were waving the palm branches in celebration, what they were celebrating was God had taken them from a place of bondage into a place of security. I'm telling you folks, this massive crowd around the throne of God, they know what it's like to have lived in bondage to sin, and now they know what deliverance feels like. And so when they wave those palm branches, it's not just an act of, well, whatever. It is a celebration. They are celebrating the deliverance. They know what it's like to suffer. Maybe they were caught up in an addiction before they knew Christ. Maybe they were buried in anxiety before they knew Christ. Maybe they were hateful, mean people before they knew Christ. But now they know the freedom from all of those things that held them in bondage. And they are standing before the throne of God in His presence, celebrating His victory. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And the last descriptor he uses is that they are praising God. It says they cry with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. They know exactly who the object of their worship is. There's no question. You know, I know sometimes in this life, even those of us who call ourselves Christian, who claim the blood of Jesus Christ, who live in His righteousness, who come to church on a regular basis, who want to see other people saved, we sometimes fall into idolatry because we put things before Jesus. We put things in our life, we make them more important, and we lift them up more than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God forgive us for that. But these people standing before the throne of God have nothing barring them from pointing everything to Jesus and saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. He is the object of our worship. He will always be the object of our worship. We will be here for all of eternity serving Him and loving Him and worshiping Him. And I would rather be here than anywhere else. What a beautiful, beautiful description of what the scene around the throne is. But there's more to this text. And we've reached the end. But there's more to it. Because we've talked about the description of the throne, but we haven't really talked about the prescription. And the question I want to ask is, how do we get from our present reality where this isn't happening to a future reality that John saw. We won't spend as much time on this part because it doesn't take as long. They actually just said it. These ones around the throne just said it. The first thing we need to do is we need to recognize that this is God's work. This is something only God can do. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Not to us. No matter how much we want it, no matter how much we desire it, no matter how much we work for it, I can't save anybody. I can't convince them enough. I can't persuade them enough. I can't do anything to get anybody from their, their state of sin into the kingdom of God. I can, that's got to be God. He's the only one 
who is capable of convicting of sin. He's the only one capable of calling people to himself. He's the only one capable of forgiveness of sin. He's the only one capable of redemption. And he's the only one capable of allowing people to stand before him holy and righteous and forgiven and redeemed. This is a work of God. Missions is a work of God. Church work is a work of God. Everything we pour our heart and soul into, we've got to realize it's a work of God. It's not us. But the second part of the prescription is great because we get to rejoice in joining him in that work. Scripture is full of invitations where God invited people to serve and to work alongside him in this work that only he can accomplish, but he chooses to accomplish with us. There are missionaries all over this world who are serving because they answered a call of God to join him in his work to go and proclaim the gospel. There are preachers in pulpits all around this nation and all around the world who are doing what they're doing because they answered a call of God to join him in his work. There are Sunday school teachers, people who sing in the choir, people who just go out and witness, who are doing what they do, not for their own glory or for any recognition, but they do it because they answered a call to join God in his work. And so my, my question to you today is, what are you doing? Because I guarantee you God is calling. Are you hearing it? Are you answering? There's simple things that we all do, that we all can do, like pray. The invitation to pray is all over Scripture. It's out there. Let's pray for our missionaries. Let's pray for our pastors. Let's pray for each other. That communication that God, God makes possible with Himself, that we can pray and simply lift people up and stand in the gap for them. That's something that we can do. We can give whether it's through Lottie Moon Christmas offering or through your regular tithes and offering or whether your own gifts to whatever, you can give to missions. You can send people. And I'm going to take a second and back up here. Because I know what you're thinking. When I say send, you're thinking, oh yeah, of course, we as a church can send people. We as a Southern Baptist Convention can send people. You know, I just saw them. Online, where the International Mission Board commissioned like 60 new missionaries. You know, they have a goal of commissioning 500 by 2025. Do you know where those 500 are going to come from? They're going to come from our local churches. There's not some magic, uh, you know, missionary machine somewhere where somebody produces missionaries. They come from our churches. And this is going to hit home. They come from our families. They come from our neighbors. They come from the people we teach in Sunday school. They come from where we're sitting right now. I spoke to a missionary recently, and, and I asked him, what do you think is one of the most difficult things for someone to answer the call to missions, Because as a, as a missionary myself, as somebody who, who works with missions and works with churches, I want to remove as many barriers as I can to people answering the call to missions. And what he told me broke my heart. He said one of the greatest barriers to somebody going on the mission field is mom and dad try to talk them out of it. They want to answer the call and mom and dad say, 
isn't there some other way that you can serve Jesus? And so if you're a parent today, if you're a grandparent, I'm going to ask you to examine your heart. Because there may come a time if we are doing what we're supposed to be doing as a church when your child not only answers the call to be saved, but answers the call to missions. How will you respond when they do? Will you be their biggest cheerleader? Will you do everything you can to equip them and train them and make sure they have everything they need to go and be successful in the work? Or will you try to talk them out of it because you're afraid? I'll tell you, I got, I got three kids. It would be hard for my kids if they came to us and they said, God's called me to go and I'm not even sure where, but I probably won't be reachable or who knows where they would be. Thank God for technology. It would be hard. It's hard enough that they live two hours away, two of them. But I hope that my response, if they came to me and said, I believe God's calling me to mission work, I would be like, praise the Lord. What can I do to help you? What can your mom and I do to support you in this work? I hope that's our answer. I think it would be. We've prayed about it long enough. The last thing is to actually go yourself. You could go. Maybe he's calling you to go. Are you willing to go? You may not have all the answers. You may not speak a language that you need to speak. You may not have all the tools you need, but he may be calling you to go. And if he's calling, are you willing to at least say yes and figure out all the rest later? The last part of this prescription is this. Remember that John, what John saw was a future reality. I want to focus on that word reality. The God who created this universe lives outside of time and space. And so he's perfectly capable of taking John, a human being, and showing him something that we haven't experienced yet, that hasn't happened yet. But when John saw it, it was just as real as me looking out and seeing you now. It was already happening, and John was seeing it in the future. And so if that's actually what's going to happen, this multitude around the throne from all nations and all tribes and all languages, worshiping and praising God in their righteousness and celebrating, then we can count on the fact that it's going to happen. It's a reality. It's going to happen. So we should live our lives knowing that that's what's going to happen. There's no risk involved in missions if God knows exactly what's going to happen. It may feel like risk to us because we don't know what's going to happen, but He does. I know that I've hit on some hard things. Y'all came here to feel good today, didn't you? So I I want you to feel good about this. God is still calling people to missions. God still has people in the corners of the earth who haven't heard the gospel, who when they do will respond and will come to know Him as Savior and Lord. And we get to be a part of it. We get to help fund it. We get to help send people. We get to help equip people. We get to be a part of it. My question to you today is what part will we play? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much 
for your word. Thank you for calling people to missions. Thank you for calling people to ministry. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for this multitude that will be before the throne, Lord. This vast group of people who are all going to be worshiping you because you are worthy of worship. Not just because of the fact that you saved us or that you redeemed us, but because you are God, you are worthy of worship. Lord, if there's anyone here today that is struggling with a decision as to whether or not you are calling them to missions or calling them to some other place of service, Lord, make it clear in their heart and mind what you're calling them to do and give them the, Lord, Give them whatever it is they need to be able to say yes, to put that yes out there and trust you with their life. Lord, if there's someone here who had to ask themselves how they would respond if their child or grandchild said they were called, Lord, I pray that you give them the peace of God to be able to be as supportive as they possibly can. Lord, we thank you that you are still calling people and we ask that you call people from within this place. We love you, and we give this time of decision to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.